Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts the Apostles, Acts the Apostles, chapter 24. And you may be interested to know that this is the 12th month that I've been going through Acts the Apostles. And I did a quick count this morning, and this is broadcast number 54. It's been a great blessing for me to be able to do this over the past 12 months. And I'm going to take a guess and suggest that I've got two to three months left before Acts the Apostles completes. The concept was very simple to... Do a verse-by-verse reading each and every Sunday to offer the best understanding that I could without any real notes, without considering my reference Bibles, and only maybe two or three times have I done so over the past 12 months. And I guess from chapters 24 to 28, you're going to get a breakdown or a final crescendo, perhaps, of this great book. From chapters 1 to 20, 21, 22, you've had the real meat, the real uh, substance of Acts the Apostles, but now it's a breakdown of Paul's final days in Acts the Apostles, his final appearance on the world stage, if I can use that term. And last week we ended in uh, Acts 23, where Paul has been detained by a chief captain, and as a result of Paul's detention, he's now been summoned to give a defense of himself for the second time. And Paul's a very interesting character to assess because uh, what is helpful for us to remember is that he came from organized religion. He was a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. And I think his nephew was probably a trainee Pharisee, a young Pharisee. So Paul is a third generation Pharisee, very much from organized religion. And therefore the Jews knew him. And therefore it's important to keep that in mind when we get to the next few verses from Acts 24. And therefore let's start today's broadcast, if we may. In verse 1, please. And after five days, Ananias the high priest ascended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. Paul has officially been informed to the governor about his conduct. And this governor is Felix, who succeeded Pontius Pilate. And it's very interesting when we read the next few verses how Paul conducts himself. When John the Baptist comes into contact with King Herod, he was scathing. He was critical of Herod's lifestyle, so much so that he lost his life. His head was removed. He was beheaded, of course. And yet when Paul comes into contact with Felix, Pilate's successor, he's very diplomatic, which is somewhat of a mystery to me. And yet, I guess Paul was playing the long game. If you do too much too soon, you burn out. If you're too critical, too often, you can lose many friends. Sometimes it's best to play the long game. And here Ananias, the high priest, has ascended with the elders, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. And I guess if we were to read this verse and try and apply it to today, you'd have perhaps someone like George Carmen, one of the great British barristers, now dead, or the fictitious character Perry Mason. Two great lawyers, two great barristers. And if you were to look at someone like Perry Mason, he won all of his cases. George Carmen won many of his cases, and those two individuals were great. Of course, one is fictitious, one is, or one is real, one is fictitious, one is uh, long dead, being George Carmen and the actor who played Perry Mason is dead as well. But my point is this, that both men were the best of the best. And here Ananias has summoned the elders with a certain orator named Tertullus. And Tertullus was probably an Hellenistic Jew, And this individual knew Paul very well, because one more time, Paul came from the world of academia. He was a Pharisee. He was the equivalent to a Catholic cardinal. 
And if you are a Catholic cardinal, you are chosen from the best of the best. You go to Rome and you study in Rome. And once you go to Rome, once you get your cardinal's cap, your red hat, as they call it, you are told that you are the best of the best. You are a prince of the Church of Rome. And of course, we know as Bible believers that such an office is foreign to Scripture. Such a character as a cardinal has no place in Scripture. Such a person is an imposter. But my point is this. Cardinals are highly esteemed in the Catholic Church, much like the high priest here and his elders would have been highly esteemed in the world of jury. And therefore, Paul is going to get his chance to defend himself. And for Paul, this is a bittersweet experience. On the one hand, he knows that he's got a chance to represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet, at the same uh, chance, at the same opportunity, at the same time, he's going to have to speak to those that he went to school with, those that he trained with, those that he possibly trained as well. Hold that thought, if you will. Look at verse 2, please. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. And that very worthy deeds are done to this nation by thy providence. We accept always, in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Tertullus is what we call a man-pleaser. And there are a couple more terms that I wouldn't dare use, somewhat crude, to express this individual's character. But he's a man-pleaser. He's the type of person that would suck up to those in authority. He wants to win favour with Felix. And Felix, a Roman governor, a Gentile, no doubt, is finding himself right in the middle of an internal dispute amongst a jury. Like Pilate found himself back in the Gospels, like Herod found himself back in the Gospels. And we were told, were we not, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we weren't to wash our laundry in public. We weren't to take our affairs before secular authorities. And yet here, Paul is very much in the will of the Lord. He was told back in Acts chapter 9 that he would preach to kings and rulers. And therefore here, Paul is in his prime. Paul is going to roll. But... Tertullus, a Jewish leader from the world of academia, a bright spark, thinks that he's got Paul in the back foot. He thinks that perhaps he's going to do what George Carmen did to many of his people that sued his clients. Carmen, as I say, would uh, defend his clients and he would wipe the floor with many of his opponents, as would Perry Mason. But here, Paul is going to shine and Tertullus will have to really double his efforts to win this issue when it comes to Paul having to give an account of himself. Look at verse 4, please. Notwithstanding, that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. Please allow us, Governor Felix, to speak the truth. Please allow us, Governor Felix, to put the wool over your eyes. Please allow us, Governor Felix, to put this innocent man in the dock and put him to death as a result. On the dock, in the dock, he's going to have to give an account of himself and we're going to hopefully win favour when it comes to Paul the Apostle being sentenced, being detained. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom he took and would have judged according to our law. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. There's that word again, fellow, fella, used of the Lord Jesus Christ, used of the Apostle Paul. This fella this, this fella that. It's used in working class circles in the UK. Hey fella, what's happening? A mover of sedition among all the Jews. He's a a rebel rouser. He wants to bring in a revolution. Far from the truth, but what do you expect from an unsaved individual? Throughout all the world, throughout the entire Roman Empire, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That term is sect. 
You think of the JWs or the Christadelphians or the SDA. And that term sect is always used in a, no- in a negative connotation. What sect are you from? What church do you go to? What denomination are you a part of? Many times used to rubbish what you are trying to do. They want to bracket you, of course. And here, Tertullus is laying his cards on the table. He's taken the position of a prosecuting attorney, a prosecuting barrister. And Paul will take the position of a defence barrister, a defence attorney, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. This individual represents jury who are more interested in worshipping the temple than God. That's why Christ told us how he was Lord of the temple and also of the Sabbath. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. He exaggerates the facts. He wants to paint a very negative picture of the Apostle Paul. And I believe we are living in a generation now which may find ourselves in the dock, having to explain ourselves to secular authorities. For me, I can't think of anything worse than having to stand in, a, in the presence of an unsaved man or woman, judge or magistrate, high court, low court, whatever, and having to explain my beliefs to such a person. Because those people, those magistrates, those judges, are probably part of secret societies. They might be Catholic or Anglican. They could be Jews or Muslims. And you know perfectly well that they wouldn't give a defense of their faith to you. And yet Christians are expected to give a defense of their faith to such people. It's double standards. It's an inconsistent uh, position that they expect us to adhere to. And that's why I've been critical over the years when you've got so-called churches having teach yourself Islam. And yet you go into a typical mosque, you won't find teach yourself Christianity. In fact, just last Sunday, I was at Speaker's Corner in central London. And I was there for two hours with like-minded, Bible-believing Christians. And I was very surprised, can I say, to see so many Muslims there that were not only representing their faith, which is fair enough, but were also quite educated about what I believe as well. And I had some very interesting conversations with those people. But here, Paul is having to give a defense of the faith, which, according to Jude chapter 1, was once delivered unto the saints. Therefore, all we are expected to do as Bible believers is to reaffirm the faith, to stand on the rock, which is Christ, uh, the rock of all ages, and preach the gospel. We don't have to defend the gospel. We simply preach the gospel. Our base is solid. Our rock is Christ, not Simon Peter, of course. Look at verse 9, please. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Once again, we have a Jewish conspiracy. And no, that's not anti-Semitic. Back in the Old Testament, the Jews conspired on multiple occasions to bring their prophets down, to weaken their kings. So it's not anti-Semitic to make such a claim. On top of that, always remember that Dr. Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, and Dr. Luke was also a Jew. So it's somewhat ridiculous to claim that such a statement as this, or such an account as this, is anti-Semitic. Impossible. Jesus Christ was a Jew from the tribe of Judah. Paul the Apostle was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And Dr. Luke, I believe, was probably one of the 70. My point is this, that the Bible, New Testament, and Old Testament was written by saved Jews. Not Catholics, not Protestants, not Russian or Greek Orthodox, but saved Jews. The Bible, therefore, is a Jewish book. But this conspiracy has reappeared. It's uh, come back on the scene. It's reared its ugly head. And we have to deal with this. We have to deal with the fact that the Jewish leaders, for the most, were anti-Christ, were anti-God. And that's why their temple was destroyed. 
in 70 AD. And yet, had the Jews as a group received Christ, had the Jews as a group received the apostles, then the millennial kingdom would have been initiated around Acts chapter 7. John the Baptist would have been Elijah. And possibly, Paul the Apostle would have been a type of Moses, the two witnesses sent to preach the gospel. But of course, we know that they didn't receive Christ. They put him to death. They put his apostles to death. And therefore, their beloved temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Look at verse 10, please. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for the worship. Now Paul gets a chance to speak for himself. And like I said over the last couple of weeks, sometimes it's good to do that. Sometimes it's good to speak for yourself. And yet, if you find yourself having to do this type of a thing, just be aware that you're going to come up against those that are experts in the law. So it can be a double-edged sword. But Paul, equipped, anointed, and filled with the Holy Ghost, knows exactly what he is doing. And here Paul wants to lay his cards on the table. And on top of that, he's very deferential. And I thought to myself, when I looked at this last night and last week, and over the last 12 months, that you would have thought, perhaps, that when Paul came into contact with Felix, a pagan governor of Judea, the successor of Pontius Pilate, you would have thought that perhaps he would have gone in with all guns blazing. But no, he's diplomatic. He's deferential. He's playing the long game. And I think if we find ourselves having to give a defense in public before a court or a political uh, council, then I guess we too should play the long game. I guess we too should be somewhat deferential. We were also told we're not from Romans 13, how the powers that be are ordained of God. And yet John the Baptist was very critical, scathing, concerning the lifestyle of Herod back in the Gospels. But look, if you will, at verse 12, please. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. I'm innocent. They can't prove that I did what they are claiming that I did. They didn't find me in the temple disputing with any man. I wasn't preaching revolution. I was preaching repentance. Neither raising up the people to overthrow Rome, not at all. Neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. That wasn't my purpose. I wasn't a Che Guevara. I wasn't a Martin McGuinness. I wasn't a Jerry Adams. I wasn't a terrorist. I wasn't somebody from the world of revolution, if you will. I was a preacher. Neither can they prove the things, well, they now accuse me. They are liars, pure and simple. And yet, sometimes... You think to yourself, did Paul have to even give a defence of himself? Imagine he arrived in court. Imagine he arrived to uh, give a defence of himself. Imagine he was put on the stand and he decided to say nothing whatsoever. I believe back in the 1980s there was a trial in Belfast and a chap called Bobby Sands was put on trial for being a terrorist. And for memory, I might be wrong, but for memory, when the court sat in Belfast, he turned his back to the court and said nothing whatsoever. He didn't even enter a plea, which is somewhat unusual. And you say, why would he do that? Because he was protesting against the court in Belfast. He thought that the court in Belfast was political. He wouldn't accept British rule over Northern Ireland, and therefore he turned his back on the court. And yet, when Mandela found himself in a courtroom in Johannesburg or Cape Town, I forget which one it was, he spoke for three days, and he made it very clear that he had plenty to say. And the courtroom adjourned. To reappear the following day. And off Mandela went again. He had plenty to say. So you think to yourself. What's going on here? Well Paul. 
is going to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is going to preach the gospel. And yet, one more time, he's going to play the long game. And I put it to you that if you find yourself in a courtroom, if I find myself in a courtroom having to explain myself as a Bible-believing Christian, I hope that I have plenty to say. I hope that I don't dry up. I don't think I would do what Bobby Sands did. And at the same time, I'm not sure I'd do what Mandela did. I think three days or two or three days is probably too long. But I know what both those men were trying to do. They were trying to make their presence felt. They wanted to use that courtroom for their own advantage. And yet here, Paul is very deferential. And here, Paul, verse 13, one more time, is making it very clear that they can't prove the things where they now accuse me. Back in Roman times, you needed uh, to convict somebody, I should say, at least two or three witnesses. The same is true today, to some extent. If you find yourself prosecuted in the UK for a crime, you need at least one or two people to convict you or to come forward and lay their case against you, to give evidence. And yet sometimes you get what's called circumstantial evidence presented to a courtroom. And circumstantial evidence can put people in jail. And I've watched many crime programs over the years. I've listened to many documentaries over the years. And I thought to myself, this case is simply based on circumstantial evidence. There's no real evidence. It's just what the court thinks happened or what the prosecuting team think happened. And they lay their case out. And the court, on many occasions, will sentence someone to jail based on circumstantial evidence. But here Paul is making the most of his detention. And here Paul, the great speaker, the great writer, the great Jew, the greatest Christian ever lived, wants the court to know, and Felix sitting in the office of a judge, I would imagine, that he's innocent, that he's done nothing worthy of being detained. And yet look at verse 14, please. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Did you get that? But this I confess unto thee, that after the way, a term for the early church, that after the body of Christ, that after the Christian church, which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He's quite happy. Would you believe to be called a heretic? He's saying, I worship the God of my fathers. I'm a part of the way. The church of Nazarene, you called me a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse 5, and therefore I'm quite happy to be called a heretic in verse 14. Remarkable. And I'll say this to you, that if you are born again, Bible-believing Christian, if you take a stand on the streets or in your community, regularly, I guess you will be called a heretic as well. They'll call you dogmatic. They will call you a hothead. They'll call you fanatic. And you know what I'm going to say? That if you are on fire for the Lord, you will be called a heretic. A fanatic and if you sit on the fence if you do nothing for the lord you'll be called a hypocrite you can't win either way and yet here paul is almost reveling in this description of himself being a heretic or being part of a of an heretical movement and he says fine i have hope toward god which they themselves also allow concerning the resurrection of the dead both of the just and on the unjust or and of the unjust now of course the pharisees believed in a resurrection whereas the sadducees did not believe in such a thing so Paul thinks to himself, perhaps I can reach out to my fellow brothers, my fellow Pharisees from my time in academia. Perhaps I can win them to the Lord. And yet, as I read through these verses, as I go into the next chapter and the following chapter, and looking back over the previous chapters, I can't find any Pharisees getting saved as a result of Paul preaching the gospel. 
And yet saying that, allow me to say this, that if you are doing street work, if you are trying to win souls to the Lord and not seeing much fruit, keep on going. Take great comfort in what Paul is going through. He's got Felix, he'll have Festus coming up in the next chapter. He'll have King Agrippa coming up in the next chapter. And King Agrippa almost, but not quite, gets saved. But Felix disregards the gospel. Festus, who would replace Felix, disregards the gospel, disregards the witness. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as far as we can see, disregard Paul's witness to them. And yet the point is, keep on going. Never give up. Look at verse 16, please. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward man. I guess Paul thought that he was always on the right side of the Lord, that from birth to baptism he was on the side of the Lord. And yet, like I said last week and the week before, according to John 16, he was an enemy of God up until his conversion. But he's not here to defend himself from the standpoint of what men think of him. He wants to defend himself from the standpoint of what God thinks of him. And after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with torments, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they have ought against me. That's fair enough. He's saying this, that these men, which are accusing me of all sorts of things, should be here to say this to my face. And this goes back to Roman law. This goes back to British law. This goes back to American law. In fact, this goes back to most of the world governments today. Most courts around the world are pretty fair for the most part. And most courts allow people to defend themselves and allow people to have their uh, their opposition, their opponents, to come in and speak against them, to lay out what they have against them. And I've watched these court cases over the years, and I've seen the defense team arrive, and I've seen the prosecuting team arrive. And they get their papers out, and they present their case to the court, and the court allows the defense teams to sift through the papers, the documents that have been put before a court to find a certain party guilty. And here Paul is making it very clear that after many years he came to bring alms or offerings to my nation offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. That goes back to the incident concerning James, who had two natures and wanted Paul to do a favour to the Jewish believers, neither multitude nor Talmuds who ought to have been here before thee and object that they had ought against me. Bring it on, he's saying. Let's hear what they've got against me, or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except to be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touch the resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question by you this day. That word council, raises ugly head, back in 20. Council of Nicaea, Council of Trent, Council of Laodicea, the Jewish council, back in John chapter 11. Council, 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 has always been evil. The Bible speaks about a conference in Jerusalem from Acts chapter 15, and never a council. And that's why if you are a student of history, you know the term council is never used concerning Bible-believing Christians, but concerning those that are enemies of the Lord, concerning those that are in organized religion. Or else, let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except to be for this one voice that I cry standing among them, touching concerning the resurrection of the dead i'm called in question by you this day i'm here he's saying based on my belief concerning the resurrection i'm not on trial concerning my political beliefs or how the sanhedrin uh, runs its affairs i'm simply standing here based on my beliefs on the resurrection and he thought to himself that perhaps that would win the pharisees over and he hoped that perhaps some of his former colleagues from the sanhedrin would hear him 
believe him and more importantly get saved and yet as i say from reading this piece of scripture this morning and reading it last night and reading the previous chapters and the latter chapters i don't read of anybody getting saved and yet one more time that doesn't stop us from doing what we do keep on going keep on witnessing for the lord and above all keep reading the bible keep praying pray until you pray and take great comfort though when paul stood in the dock and laid his cards on the table he glorified god immensely Salvation may not have come as a result of him standing in the court and giving a defense of himself, but that's okay. Almighty God was greatly glorified. So 21 verses from month number 12, week number 52. And I've still got a lot of material to cover over the next few weeks and possibly months, but I'm going to guess that three months will be the maximum amount of time that it will take me to conclude Acts of the Apostles. But a very brief wrap-up and recap, and I will say this, that Paul was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. His nephew was probably a Pharisee, so three generations of Pharisees from organized religion. He comes out of organized religion like a Catholic cardinal, I guess, getting saved would do so, and then turning around and preaching to his friends and colleagues that the blood of Christ is what saves you, and only the blood of Christ saves you. And of course, they would shun such a cardinal, and here they are going to shun Paul. Because for them to accept such a truth would mean, A, they're out of a job. B, they are no longer respected. They are no longer in need. Their offices have ceased. And C, the temple is going to be kaput. No longer necessary. It's going to be made redundant. It's going to be closed down. And of course it was by 70 AD. And yet Paul, when he gets to speak to Felix, is very deferential. He doesn't go in all guns blazing. He plays a long game. Softly, softly catchy monkey. And he's very happy to say that in verse 14, that the group which he was a part of, if it's heresy, so be it. I don't care. Much like what Martin Luther said when he stood before the uh, Council of Worms or the uh, German Catholic Church back in 1516 from memory. And he's quite happy to be called a heretic. But he says, listen, I'm not here to explain myself to you. I'm here to preach about the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to preach about those that are going to be resurrected. Some are going to be saved, some are going to be unsaved. And he finds himself having to further explain himself before this council, 20, which is always against God and has always been against God. And he will continue to lay his defense out as a type of a lawyer, a type of a barrister. And if I know Paul, he was very much enjoying his opportunity to be an orator from verse 1, to glorify God ultimately and to increase the faith of like-minded Say people that were no doubt aware that Paul was having to do such a thing in public. And I think it could come to us sooner than we think. But I will close there in verse 21 one last time. Except to be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. That's what I'm here for. And I will stand or fall based on the resurrection of the dead. Next week we'll pick it up in Acts 24 verse 22.